This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Defense Department is still figuring out how to raise the cybersecurity waterline among its vendor community as part of its cybersecurity maturity model certification program. And some new research based on privately collected cyber risk intelligence shows the problem is as urgent as ever. According to a new report from Black Kite, almost three-quarters of defense contractors have had network credentials leaked in just the past 90 days. That's a huge jump from the last time the firm measured that statistic. Jeffrey Wheatman is a senior vice president at Black Kite, and he's with us now to talk more about the findings. Jeffrey, thanks for doing this. And let's start with sort of the, the headline number from this latest piece of research. 72% of contractors had at least one leaked credential in the last 90 days. Can you take us inside that a little bit? Because the term defense contractors can cover a lot of territory. I assume there are some that are more vulnerable than others. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's great to be here, Jared. Thanks for uh, setting aside some time to uh, talk to me today. Yeah. So uh, as part of building this report, which by the way, was a, did a, a previous version in January of uh, last year, uh, we looked at the top 100 defense contractors out of the defense contract network systems, right? So we can see who those organizations are. So these are folks that are supplying for, you know, the DOD and that sort of military complex. And the challenge that we have seen with a lot of organizations that have leak credentials, leak credentials are one of the number one vectors for ransomware infections, right? Because if you have someone's email, you can create malware in that or insert malware into that. You send it to someone in the organization and they say, hey, look at that. That came from Jeffrey Wheatman at BlackKite.com. I'm safe. So when those credentials get out there, they become a, a very, very big uh, attack vector. And unfortunately, as much as we have been recommending for years, a lot of organizations are still not doing strong authentication or multi-factor. So if I have your email login and your password, I'm you for all intents and purposes, which is a huge exposure, as, as I'm sure you can imagine. The Defense Department has pointed out for years that it, it sees its vendor base as kind of the soft underbelly of the of the whole enterprise from a from a cyber risk perspective. Does your research kind of bear that out when you compare contractor vulnerabilities versus what you see in the government itself? Hmm, that's a great question. Uh, I think you know this as well as I, the government is not one entity, right? It's a bunch of different sure. entities. And to be honest, some agencies are much better than others. And I think you can imagine which ones those those would be. Um, I do see, you know, in my long career of, of working with folks in the federal space, I think oftentimes the government asks um, partners and contractors to do things that they themselves are not really able to do, or at least don't do at the, at the level that they need to be. Uh, and I think that over the last number of years, you know, with digital business and the government is no exception, um, with cloud explosion, it's not even an expansion anymore. It's no longer about one person's posture. It's about everybody connected to their posture. And, and I think that the DOD is 100% correct in that they're potentially very exposed. And I think one of the big challenges is everybody thinks defense contractors are all huge, but there are thousands and thousands of defense contractors. Most of them are not those big companies. They're small shops that are doing, you know, manufacturing of one sensor or one, one um, component. And, you know, over the last 10, 15 years, the DOD has tried multiple attempts to figure out what the posture is and how to fix the cybersecurity posture. Uh, and the, you know, the latest attempt is CMMC. And, and we know that back in September, uh, they frankly took a lot of the teeth out of it because I think they realized 
too many of their contractors can't do what they need them to do or what they've asked them to do. And to your point, as GAO just pointed out, they found that DOD couldn't live up to the CMMC standards either. Um, let's let's take a little deeper on, on that defense contractor space. From what you can tell, do attackers see the difference between those those large firms and the smaller firms who may have slightly more vulnerable security postures? In other words, are they more likely to go after a smaller or mid-tier contractor than they are one of the big five? That's an interesting question, and I, and I think there's sort of there's a multi-part answer. I think some of the attacks we see out there are very much let's take some malware, let's throw it against the wall and see what sticks, right? So sometimes it's just pure luck that a piece of malware goes out there and maybe it infects a small company, maybe it infects a big one, maybe a small one comes back and they say, oh, hey, this company's connected to here or we know they're a supplier. So some of it's sort of just you know luck of the grab. I do, however, think that we've seen a huge, and I think we know there's been a huge uptick in nation-state-sponsored nation accounts, whether they're actual governments or whether the governments are throwing money at a lot of these ransomware gangs. And I think those are going to be much, much more targeted. And I think those people know that they will have an easier time getting into those smaller companies who are not necessarily in the position to be able to defend themselves. And if those attackers are patient enough and frequently they can afford to be patient, they're okay if it takes a couple of steps. So maybe they go to a real small company and then they get to a slightly larger one. And then maybe they can jump right into one of the big ones through a trusted connection because we tend to trust our partners. And that has proven itself to be problematic, to say the least. Another data point the research points out is that companies that have lower technical capacity or technical ratings, as you put it, are, are many times more likely to actually have a breach. Can you, can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the way we like to look at it is that uh, people take a controls-based approach, but the reality is you have to look at the entire ecosystem of your plan, your program, how you run your security organization. And if you think about our programs as a home, right? The attackers only need to find one open window, one open door, uh, you know, one garage code that's one, two, three, four, and they're in, and then they can roam around. So the more open ports, the more breach, um, you know, credentials, the more missing patches, the less encrypted traffic, all of these things are just other opportunities to get in. And, you know, the bad, the attackers know that. And they only need one way. The, the metaphor I use all the time is the defenders need to be perfect, but the attackers only need to find one missing scale in the dragon's armor and they're inside. And I think that the more complex an organization is, the more complex an ecosystem, the more likely it is that there's a T that's not crossed or an I that's not dotted. And then they wedge and they pull and they get in and they can sit and they can be patient. And uh, I was actually at a networking event last night uh, with a, a former uh, FBI agent uh, who, who works for one of our partners. And, um, you know, he was talking about the fact that there is malware that was probably planted 18, 24, 36 months ago that is just sitting and waiting for an opportunity to be triggered. And that stuff, I think, is largely from nation states. Um, and, and your audience may be familiar, I'm sure they are, with uh, the solar winds problem that happened a couple of years ago. Well, there are still lots of companies out there that have solar winds that have not patched it, and that means they're probably infected. And the attackers are just waiting to see something interesting. 
Bottom line here, everyone within the sound of our voice has heard this 20,000 times at this point, but this this is all cyber hygiene stuff, right? It is basic blocking and tackling that, that gets you into a better place. That is absolutely true. Uh, Verizon just reached their, released their annual DBIR, the Data Breach Investigation Report, and I don't have the exact number, but I can tell you about what it is. 75% of success, successful attacks are they compromise systems where a patch has been available for at least a year. So absolutely, basic blocking and tackling, you know, putting in strong passwords, putting in MFA, patching systems, segmenting networks, all things that we have known should have been done 10, 15, 20 years, as long as I've been a practitioner, even longer than 20 years. And um, I think people are still just overwhelmed with the size of their networks, the complexity, you know, especially a lot of larger organizations have a lot of heterogeneity in their environment. So they don't have three operating systems to patch. They have 12 at 50 different patch levels. It's just, it's a lot to balance. And that's why getting ahead of the curve, kind of what we refer to as left of boom, right? What do we know up front? Let's get as much information so that we can at least know where our exposures are and then use that to prioritize how we're going to protect ourselves. Last thing, Jeffrey, I'm I'm hoping you can say a little bit about the methodology behind your study. I mean, you you guys are a cyber risk intelligence firm. I don't I know you don't want to spill all your secret sauce here on on the radio, but but say a little bit about when when you when you throw out a figure along the lines of 72 percent of contractors have had at least one breach. How do we know that? Yeah, so there's a bunch of different things that go in there. But the, the first thing is we, we have the largest data store. We have, I think, the second largest data store in Google's cloud right now. We have data on 34 million organizations across the world. Um, we have over 400 uh, OSINT open source intelligence sources, some of which you would know, some I can't actually share. Um, so we collect all of this data and we run it through uh, a tremendous amount of analysis and we benchmark people against uh, the NIST framework and this MITRE ATT&CK framework, which is where we get a technical score. We also do uh, financial analysis based on Open Fair, which is uh, uh, a risk assessment methodology. Uh, and then we also have a, a module where we ingest compliance documents and questionnaires, and we score people against 14 or 15 different uh, frameworks. And then we also have the ability, so we have uh, what we call a data breach, a data breach index, which is backward looking. So we look at, you know, the dark web and, and we, uh, we have people that lurk in a lot of different languages on the hacker boards. We comb the news, we comb, uh, you know, required reporting. A lot of the federal government stuff is required for you have to report when you have a breach. Um, we see credentials out there. So we take that and we can tell you when people have been breached in the past. And then we actually did some work a couple of years ago. Uh, a lot of our clients said, hey, you know what? We're vulnerable here and there, but ransomware, that's the biggest problem. So we actually worked with the research team from IBM and we came up with this ransomware susceptibility index where we know that even though there are 292 controls that we measure people against, a very small number of them are actually relevant to ransomware. So we basically compress that and we have this RSI where it's a, it's, I always hesitate to use predictive because it's more probabilistic than saying you're going to be breached because we don't like to say that, but above six, you're exposed. And, and we know from the report that, that quite a few organizations were, were above that. So essentially we have a tremendous amount of data. It's very, very highly, um, validated. We don't put anything in a report unless we have two confirming sources for it. Mm. Um, And we're able to bring together a lot of different 
perspectives and, and views. Uh, you know, in my 15 years at Gartner uh, prior to arriving at Black Height, I advised a lot of CISOs and CROs going in front of the boards, going in front of the trustees, going in front of Congress in the federal space on how to effectively communicate risk in non-technical language. And what we have found is the more different views or perspectives you can bring to bear, the more powerful the story is. If you go to your, your executive and say, hey, we're a B as compared to what? Well, okay, we're a B and we have $17 million worth of financial exposure because we have regulated data and some intellectual property. Those are two very, very different stories. And, and you know, as, as we say, uh, not every B is the same B. Right. Some of them are much, much more exposure than others. For example, we see lots of companies that have A minus B plus scores, but their RSI is 0.7. So overall, they're doing OK. But the specific things that are used to defend against ransomware, they're not doing well in that area. That's Jeffrey Wheatman, senior vice president at Black Kite. We'll post a link to the report we've been discussing at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there are so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, Admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? 
And, and how's that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, 
and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.